Now hear God's holy word from Revelation chapter 7. Pay close attention. These are the very words of God. After these things I looked, and behold, a great number, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures, and fell on their faces before the throne, and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where do they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who came out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the angels who stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came out and stood before the altar. And he was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Dear Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your son Jesus, who as we sang this morning, gave himself completely and utterly for us, holding absolutely nothing back. There was nothing he reserved. There's nothing he held back from us. And our hearts are so hardened and so distant and so hateful and so burdened with the care of this world that we, we reserve ourselves and, and keep ourselves. We keep our worship and our gratitude and our thanksgiving and the service that is yours and the resources that are yours, we selfishly keep to ourselves. Father, break our hearts, soften us, and by your Holy Spirit, Give us the ability to give our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the worship that he is due. Father, change us and revive us and reform us and cause us to hear your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. <clears throat> John, when you pick songs, you got you to pick, you got to space those out, okay? You got <laughs> yeah, there were some tough ones this morning to get through. Uh, I'm thankful, John, for your work. I'm really, really thankful. How would you like to change the world? That's a pretty broad question, isn't it? Everyone wants to change the world. That's what we're all about, right? We're all on some kind of crusade. There's something we want to fix. There's something we want to change. Let's just pick one issue. Let's just pick one thing that we want to transform out of all the attitudes, behaviors, systems in the world that grieve us, that disturb us, things that are so horribly broken that they, they seem beyond repair. All of these fallen institutions around us that bring nothing but oppression and enslavement and death 
these things that are so openly opposed to God's structure and law and order for society, just pick one. What is it? We heard the awful statistics about abortion in our country this morning. There are broken structures of marriage and family. There's broken economics that lead to poverty and enslavement. Education is a mess. Science and technology, the arts. Pick one. Where would you start? What do you do first? Well, I know, I know what we tend to think. We think, well, let's get a plan. What's, what's the first thing we need? We need to raise some money. That's where it begins, right? That's where it starts. Raise some money. How are we going to raise the funds? And then once we get some money, we need a good media strategy. We need some publicity. We need a really slick website, a podcast. We need to, we need to get some uh, really uh, professional-looking videos. One dimension of our world-changing uh, mission has to be political. We need to think about who we want to get elected and, and either get them into office or, or think about how we influence the people who are already elected and get them to pass the laws that we want passed. So, so that's a start, right? We need money. We need media. We need political influence. That's how we change the world. That's a pretty good start, right? If you had money and media and political influence, there's a lot of stuff you could get done. You think, right? Well, those things all have their place. And we can, we're allowed to use all the tools at our disposal. But ultimately, those things by themselves don't change the world. Because by themselves, those are the tactics and strategies of the world. The, the world system set in opposition to God is really good at those things already. And it's good at defending against those weapons, and it's really good at undermining our efforts because that's their game, and it's a game that they're better at than we are. If you've been around evangelical culture long enough, um, you know that, and, and you've, you've thought back over history, there's always some new thing that, that evangelicals and, um, and parachurch organizations and churches are trying to get us interested in. <sighs> There's always some, some new thing that this is it. This is the key. This is the strategy. This is the, uh, this is the, 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 the movement. And it, and it can be pretty wearisome after a while. It's like, oh, it's a roller coaster. Let's go, let's go protest this movie. Let's, let's boycott this theme park. You know, it's always, it's always something else. This is the thing that will change the world. But none of these things change anything as we've, as we've seen. The world is changed. The world is given life. The world is given revival and reformation by the one thing that nobody in Washington pays attention to. Nobody on Wall Street cares about it. Nobody in Hollywood talks about it. Nobody mentions it. It's not on a PowerPoint at some network television boardroom. You won't see or hear about it in a hundred hours of Netflix sitcoms or in a week's worth of Twitter or Facebook or Instagram posts by all your favorite celebrities and athletes. The world is transformed by the thing that nobody pays attention to. The world is transformed and preserved and renewed by the worship and obedience of the people of God. That is how the world is transformed, by the worship and obedience of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. God has put his church in a position of authority and dominion over all the earth. In, in the first chapter of Ephesians, we're told he has raised us up and seated us in the heavenlies with Jesus. What is Jesus doing in the heavenlies? He's ruling. 
He's ruling all of creation. And, and repeatedly in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he says, we are in him. We are in him. Go through your Bible and underline every time it says we are in him. Jesus is ruling the cosmos and we are in him. We are seated in the heavenlies with Jesus. We reign with him and we reign in him. He's also given us the keys to the kingdom of heaven. He's given the church the mission to disciple the nations. The church rules the nations of the world. When God gives Adam dominion and when he gives Noah dominion on the other side of the flood, it's not just mankind that God is giving dominion to. It's covenant man that gets dominion. It's man who's in covenant with God who gets to rule the world. And now you may say, well, I... I know what you're saying and it sounds kind of right, but have you stuck your head outside lately? Because it sure doesn't look like the church is ruling the cosmos. It seems rather obvious that the wicked presently have rule and dominion. Yep, they, they absolutely do. Why? Well, it's pretty simple because we've let them. If we don't like the way things are going in the world, we only, we, the church, the body of Christ, only have ourselves to blame. When the church is faithful, when our ways please the Lord, God changes the hearts of rulers and leads them to rule righteously. We've seen this over and over in our biblical studies. When we've worked through books and themes together, we've seen it time and time again. Through the faithfulness of Joseph, Pharaoh was converted. Through the faithfulness of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar was converted. Through the faithfulness of Esther, Ahasuerus was converted. And that was in the Old Covenant. That was in the weaker covenant. That's before the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church on the day of Pentecost. In the old covenant, in the weak covenant, one believer changes empires. What can God do through a church on this side of Pentecost, even a small church, not just one believer, but many believers? What would the Lord do through a spirit-filled church whose ways please Him? When we obey the Lord, God changes the world. But when the ways of God's people displease him, well, then he sends them tyrants and he puts their land under idols. When we have evil and destructive rulers, it means only one thing. The church has not been pleasing to God. Based on that, consider this perspective. That God doesn't so much require us to take over the culture, we're already in charge of it. But what God calls us to is to stop mistreating and abusing the culture. And that begins by faithful worship and obedience. That's so hard to get our heads around because we think in terms of control and manipulation. We see levers of money and media and, and politics and we think that's how we change. We got to flip the switches in the right order to change the world, to change our society. And that's the way we think. But Paul tells us in Ephesians, as Matthew read this morning, that our struggle isn't with flesh and blood. Our warfare is in the spiritual realm against spiritual powers. And so the primary weapons, the most effective weapons of our warfare are spiritual. Just a few minutes, I read, uh, a few minutes ago, I read something from the book of Revelation. It gives us some insight and shows us what this looks like. And I'm, I've got a very short message today, and I'm short on time today. So I'm giving you one image that I want to burn into your mind. One thing I want you to focus on, and that's this image from Revelation 7 and 8. Uh, by the way, the book of Revelation, um, I know you know this, but I feel like anytime we go to the book of Revelation, we need to, uh, we need to say this. It's not this um, coded, 
indecipherable book about things that are going to happen at the end of the world and we really don't need to worry about it or read it because when these things take place, we're going to be so busy dodging brimstone that it's not going to matter what's going on. That's not what the book of Revelation is all about. What is it? The book of Revelation is written to the churches who were in the middle of persecution and suffering. They were suffering in an idolatrous society. And the book of Revelation is written to them so that they could see have this window into what God is doing in the heavenlies while things are working out on earth. So what did we see happening there? There's a worship scene at the beginning, a whole host worshiping before God's throne. The whole book of Revelation is this great heavenly liturgy. There's this great multitude of saints, some of which have come out of the great tribulation. Or maybe some of these are the martyrs who are crying out in chapter six, oh Lord, how long, how long are you going to let this continue? And these saints are gathered before the throne of God in worship and supplication at the end of chapter seven. And then at the beginning of chapter eight, God directs his angels to respond to the worship and the prayer of the saints. And so what the, what the first thing we see is silence in heaven. So the people worship and they raise a shout and they raise their voices and they praise the lamb who sits on the throne and then there's silence in heaven for half an hour. Well, we're gonna be quiet now and we're gonna see what God is gonna do. We're gonna see what God does in response to this. The saints have spoken and now we wait on God. And then the angels pick up their trumpets and another angel comes from, uh, to, the, to the altar and he mixes incense with the prayers of the saints. The prayers of the saints go up, but he mixes incense from before the throne of God with the prayers there, which means to me that even our best prayers are imperfect. God perfects our prayers. He purifies our prayers. So the prayer and the heavenly incense go up together and ascend before God. Then the angel takes the censer of the prayers and incense, fill, fills it with fire from the altar, and throws it to earth. And on earth, there are noises and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. And that's the section of the book where God begins to visit and judge the earth based on the prayers and the supplications of the saints. So, so here's the picture. Here's what's happening here. The prayers, the supplication, the worship that pleases God are a sweet-smelling incense. It, it goes up before the face of God. The prayers go up to God's throne, and fire comes from the altar down to the earth. Prayers go up. Fire from heaven comes down. That's the image that I want burned into your mind from this section. When... When the prayer goes up, the fire go comes down. And sometimes the fire that comes down is God's judgment against sin. Sometimes the Holy Spirit comes down like fire. So sometimes it's discipline and correction. Sometimes it's revival. Either way, God responds to right worship and obedience by sending fire and shaking the earth. Well, that's exactly what happened back um, in 1 Kings, right? When the prophet Elijah faced off against the prophets of Baal, 
He built the altar. He arranged the sacrifice. He poured water on the altar. Why did he do that? Well, number one, to show that he didn't have any hidden, you know, uh, burning embers to light the fire. But also, remember, there was a drought in the land at this time. And you pour water on the altar first, and then God pours water on the land. See, you, whatever you want done in the land, you do first in worship. So you want the land to be united and harmonious. Well, the church better be united and harmonious. You want the world to worship Jesus in spirit and truth. Well, the church better do it. So, so Elijah pours water on the altar, and then God responds by pouring water on the land later. But in the middle of this, Elijah prays, hear me, O Yahweh, hear me, that this people may know that you are Yahweh God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. And then after Elijah prayed that, the fire of Yahweh fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. The, the, the prayer of the faithful prophet of God went up and fire came down. And soon after, when it began to rain, it washed the bodies of the prophets of Baal right out of the land with the rest of the refuse and the garbage. But that's the image I want you to see. Prayer went up and fire came down. On the day of Pentecost, the church has assembled in one accord, waiting in Jerusalem, just as God commanded. And, and, and God was pleased to pour out His Holy Spirit on them. They obeyed, they worshiped, they prayed, and then flaming tongues uh, of fire danced on their heads. He baptized them with fire and the Holy Spirit. Uh, if, if I had time, we'd go back to 2 Chronicles 20. I love that story there. I know I've referenced it before, but Moab and Ammon invade Judah and King Jehoshaphat responds by repenting and he goes into the temple and he spreads himself out on the altar and he prays and the, the, they worship and then God removes the threat. They sing psalms and God defeats their enemies. God responds to worship. And when we pray and when we sing, he responds and delivers. God beats down Satan and Satan is defeated. One more that you know of, uh, Paul and Silas are in prison. <laughs> what do they do? They sing and they pray and the earth shakes and they were delivered. How many examples do you need of people obeying God with right obedience and worship before his face and he shakes the earth and he changes the world? It happens over and over and over in the scriptures because God is king of all the earth. There is nothing outside of his control or authority. God can change whatever he wants to. And he has shown time and time again that he will change and transform our environment. Could God stop all Planned Parenthoods tomorrow? Yeah, he could. He could. Could he transform our society in such a way that, that men are faithful to their wives and wives are faithful to their husbands? And we don't have all this confusion and this horror and this despair. He could. But but he's shown that he will transform our environment when his people are obedient and follow him in right worship. Proverbs 16, if a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies be at peace with him. And those enemies could be liberals or Marxists or uh, 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 abortionists or uh, bureaucrats who enforce onerous tyrannical zoning uh, laws, you know, anything. <laughs> If a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Satan and his forces have no protections. They have no countermeasures against worship and obedience. 
That's why Satan doesn't want God's people worshiping and obeying God. That's the one thing he can't handle. Satan and his forces can handle politicians. They can handle money. They can handle media. They can handle militaries. They have strategies to deal with all those things, and they've been handling them much longer than we have. But what Satan and his minions can't handle is when somebody humbles himself and worships and obeys God. Satan can't handle what we're doing right now. He hates it. And he'll do everything he can to distract you and make you think that what we're doing here isn't important and that it doesn't do anything. You know, this, this morning, there have been so many little, just today, so many little like impish, weird things that have happened just to get to this point in, in worship. There were so many little things that happened this week, even while I was preparing for it, for for this sermon, things went wacky this week. This was really weird. There were weird things that happened this morning that were distracting and, and nuts. And maybe you all, when you're trying to get to church this morning, maybe goofy things happened to you. Was, was Satan, uh, you, know, you know me, I'm not a guy who gets a flat tire and says, oh, the devil doesn't want me to have a good day. No, that's not, you know that's not me, right? But you can also tell that Satan really doesn't want us to worship and he really wants to distract us from, from what we're doing because he hates it. He absolutely hates it. That's why worship is always a battleground in the church. Why is it that you have such strong opinions about why you like this or why you don't like that? Why are you so easily irritated by this thing or that thing in worship? It's because Satan wants you to undermine or devalue or disrupt worship. Because Satan knows that worship is the advancement of, of God's army. And he knows that worship is a death sentence for his army. Satan knows that as long as there are worshipers in the world and that number of worshipers is growing, he knows his doom is sure. So if you want to change the world, it's not complicated. Do what pleases God. Know his word his will. Worship before his face in such a way that pleases him and he will bring it to pass. That's how the church rules the world for better or for worse, through our interface with God. We lead the world in either faithfulness or disobedience. Either way, it's in inescapable. The church leads the world. So maybe rather than telling the world what is wrong, we begin as the body of Christ demonstrating what real, consistent, truthful, faithful, godly living looks like. We can't tell the government to execute, to, to execute justice with equity and truth. We can't tell them to clean up their act when the church doesn't practice church discipline. I'm saying the church at large. We can't tell our cities and states to stop wasting tax money and to get out of debt when Christians are trillions of dollars in debt in back tithes that they owe the Lord. We have led the world into this selfish, individualized, privatized religion of personal emotional stimulation where God's word really doesn't matter, where God's law really doesn't matter. There's no standard. There's no structure. It's all kind of this watered down grace. That's the Christian evangelical modern message. It's just this watered down grace where you can't stand for anything or make anybody feel bad. That's just the gospel, right? We're just loving. It's fine. Everything's cool. I'm going to affirm whatever weird thing you want to believe. That's okay. And then we get surprised when people actually live that way. We get surprised when everyone acts as if they're a law to themselves. It's my body. It's my choice. It's my life. Who are you to judge? Who taught them that? We did. Don't you see how the church has led the world to this point? 
And we don't get out of this with more personal, emotional stimulation. We don't get out of this with more chaos and disorder. No matter how much Christian lingo we mix with it, we don't battle Baal worship with golden calf worship. We don't battle Molech worship with every man doing what is right in his own eyes. So go ahead, wring your hands over the state of the family. Click your tongue over men who don't provide and men who abuse women and children. Shake your head over all forms of sexual identity confusion that are being affirmed and championed. When you are addicted to pornography and you don't treat your wife like Jesus treats the church, when you don't love your wife, when you don't give out of what God has given you back to the church, when you don't respect and honor your husband, when you're not leading and nurturing your children in the way of the Lord, when you don't when you don't follow the Lord in faithfulness and you entertain all kinds of hatred and anxieties and perversions in your heart, you are not part of the solution. You're the problem. You're saying, this is the kind of world I really want to live in. I want this world of disorder and rebellion, really, deep in my heart. That's what I want because that's what I like. And that's what I want to embrace. I want to embrace this world where I can just be left alone to, to populate the world with my perversion. I'm going to wrap up. And, and uh, I, you know, what, what I love about you and what I love about our congregation and why I'm so happy to be in the communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches and wouldn't want to be anywhere else on the earth. I'm so happy with my brothers in the CREC and I'm happy with our churches. What I love about us and what I love about our, our, uh, what we have going for us is that we're willing to obey God against the, the grain, go against the grains, swim against the current of pop Christianity and culture. We're willing to say, what if, what if we actually did what Jesus said when he said, do this in remembrance of me? He said, do this. And he took real bread and he took real wine and he gave it to his disciples and they ate it and they drank it in his presence. What if, what if, we, just, what if we just did that? Let's try that. Let's do that. And let's do it every time we get together. We're willing to say that. We're willing to say, you know what? Three times in the New Testament, we're told to sing the Psalms. So, so what if we did that? What if we sang all 150 Psalms? And what if we even learned how to sing them in the word order that the Holy Spirit gave us? What if we learned how to do that? What if, we, what if we do that? And let's see what God does. Let's see how God blesses that. What if we hold forth the importance of the covenant, especially for our children, that we lead with the covenant, just like God leads with the covenant? Uh, what, if, what if we do that? How will God bless that? What if we practice church discipline? What if we studied God's word, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, word by word, throughout the entire Bible? What, how would God bless that? And that's what I love about you, and that's what I love about our church, and that's what I love about what we're doing, that, that we're, we're, we're so open to doing what pleases God in those areas. All these things, I'm convinced, are very pleasing to the Lord. But there are areas where God is not pleased with us. Like Jesus told the church at Ephesus back in Revelation 2. He says, I know your works. I know your labor. I know your patience and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say are their apostles and are not and have found them liars. The church of Ephesus was so concerned about the truth and they were right to be. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Jesus is praising them. Yet he says, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. 
Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. You see, it's possible that there are a lot of things that God is really pleased with, but there are some other things that he's not happy with that make him angry so that he could even come and remove the lampstand, remove the blessing from a church. And so for us, there are areas where God is not pleased with all of us. Why do we not give what's required of us? Why are we so driven by fear and not faith when it comes to obeying God? Why do we draw back and keep the church at arm's length all the time? The body of Christ. Why why do we harbor hatefulness and contempt for the saints? Why are we always accusing and ridiculing each other instead of embracing and loving? Why do we act like service is a chore and not a privilege? Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. There's nothing that that he asks of you that's going to ruin you. There's nothing he asks of you that's going to wear you out. But we act like service is a chore. Why do we not live like the world depended upon our faithfulness before God? You see, if our ways are not pleasing to God, we will have strife and turbulence and grief. And and any sources of this we have are evidences that, that there are things to change and there are things to repent of and there are things to reform. We're setting aside this week, as Matthew said just a few minutes ago, we're setting aside this week to pray and focus on our very local, very present curse of abortion in our community right here in the Triangle. And so we've adopted this week out of 40 uh, where, where other churches are fasting and praying asking God to change the world in this way. And this is, this is our week to partner. We've, we've chosen to do this. The, the elders have agreed this is the week we're going we're gonna, to uh, participate. This, this wickedness that we are praying for God to change, it is a heartbreaking, uh, nauseating form of rebellion against the image of God. It's unbelievable. None of us can even wrap our mind around the thought process that would lead one to put their own child to death. And so we're asking God to move on the hearts of women and and men to change our society so that one day that we'll look back at this as one of those ugly, weird artifacts of history. So far gone that we can't even imagine anybody would do something like that. This coming Saturday morning, you are invited to come spend about an hour and a half praying and singing psalms. We're going to be roaring psalms right at the gates of hell. We're going we're to shout psalms right into the mouth of hell uh, for some time on Saturday morning. Not all of you are going to be able to make it. Some of you aren't even interested. Some of you wish I'd just shut up and go to the next hymn and we'd be done with it. I understand. But whether you're there or not, and some of you may have other things going on, other good things that you're doing, and that's, that's fine. Whether you're there or not, the bigger question is, do you care enough about the world around you to reform your life in a way that's pleasing to God? Do you see that, that right now, as we're worshiping, angels are mixing our prayers with incense from before the throne of God, and those are wafting up before God's face, and he hears them, and when he's ready, he's going to take that fire from the altar, and he's going to throw it to earth. Do you believe that when prayer goes up, that fire comes down? Do you believe that if a man's ways please the Lord, even his enemies are at peace with him? Do you believe that before the world repents, the church must repent? Do you believe that before the world is reformed, 
the church must be reformed. That is the, that is the real question. Whether or not you're, you're there on Saturday, that's, I'm not, I'm not going to have a, ask you to raise your hand. That's not it. And I'm, I'm not uh, putting that on your conscience. Um, but I am asking you are, you, are you committed to the reformation of your own heart, to the reformation of your own life before God? That, that is what changes the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, and I pray that you would, in fact, uh, reform us by your Holy Spirit. Change our hearts and our minds. Give us the ability to walk in your way, in your light, by your Spirit. So, Father, strengthen us, we pray, in all these ways. And do, Father, transform the world, transform our society, transform our environment, so that your kingdom comes more and more, and we can see it on earth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.